Good morning, church family. For those of you online, I want to welcome you this morning as well, this Lord's Day to worship. Uh, Super excited to uh, share with you out of God's Word today. So if you have your Bibles open to Acts chapter 9, you can take your bulletin or you can take a notes card and place it there. Close it just for a moment. We'll come back to that. I've got some flowers to my left and your right. Uh, I was pointed out this week that I maybe have a habit of saying my left and your right, which kind of makes that funny. So I didn't realize I said that. Now I do. So just be looking for that. But it's not about that. It's actually about the flowers. So let's pay attention to the flowers. The white flower is an indication of a new life in Christ. And uh, we had a middle school student at camp make a decision to follow Jesus. And that is worth celebrating today. So let's do that. All right, some other good news. Two baby boys born, born to the church family, Rory James uh, Stamshore, uh, born to Craig and Erica on June 27th. Are you here this morning? If you are, you have to raise your hand. Okay, great. Well, we're grateful that uh, this little boy is with you now, and we celebrate that. And also, Tate Vernon Lesnar, born this past week, July 19th, to Tony and Amy Lesnar. So you're not here this morning, are you? I would hope not. You are! awesomeness. Yes, let's praise God. I hope you are. I just didn't want you to feel bad if you weren't. But I'm glad you are. So congratulations. We're super excited for you all. And what a blessing uh, these children are. All right. So this morning, We're going to talk about uh, the Apostle Paul, and we're going to uh, spend some time in Acts chapter 9 looking at his conversion story, how he went from Saul to Paul, how by the grace of God, this man named Saul was transformed into a new person who essentially took on the name Paul, and we now know as the Apostle Paul. So today's conversion experience in Saul's life gives us opportunity to think of our own conversion story as we have been invited into the family of God. So I'm going to read out of Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, all the way through verse 22. Can you believe it? So we're going to take on this whole conversion story this morning. And uh, if we get to 2 o'clock, I will order lunch. I have... (laughs) Just kidding. We'll get done, I promise. Not guaranteeing when, just that we will. So, Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, all the way through 22. Follow along in your Bible. It's going to be much easier than on the screen. If you don't have one with you, follow on the screen. Here's Saul's conversion, life change, transformation by God's grace as a follower of Jesus. Meanwhile, Acts 9 verse 1, meanwhile... Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus, On this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. The voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go to the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision calling, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street to the house of Judas. When you get there for a man from Tarsus named Saul, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so that he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things that this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the gospels, to the kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them, to take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful. And the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, I praise you for your word. And I thank you for the encouragement that we can gain through it. As we consider the conversion of Saul to Paul this morning, help us to take time to reflect on our own life and your goodness, God, your love towards us. As you have pursued Saul, you've also pursued each one of us. I pray this morning that we can recognize how much we need you, Jesus, that we can recognize who you really are and what you can do for us. That for those of us who have a conversion story, 
that we leave today with thankful hearts. For those who do not, may they recognize today your love and your pursuit of them. May they turn from their self and turn to you so that they too can experience life, life abundantly. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to think about the people in your life who you are absolutely convinced that they are so disinterested in the church and in knowing Jesus that they will never come to faith in Christ. Who comes to mind? Don't say it out loud. But I imagine somebody has come to mind. I want to just pause here for a minute to let that image sear and burn into your heart and into your head. Because what I want you to realize today is that by God's grace, God is still pursuing that person. You might have given up on that person in the hope that they'll ever come to Jesus, but God has not, and nor should you. I'm going to ask it another way. Maybe the person that actually came to your mind is you. Is you. You're here against your will. You're here to please your spouse or your parent. You're here because it's the right thing to do. But you're really not interested in this God thing or the church. But you're willing to go along and play the game. I want you to know that God's not done with you yet. He's pursuing you. He's chasing after you. And I hope today he gets your attention. And if there's one request I would ask of you, is that you would give your attention today to the Lord. Because what I'm about to share with you is really, really good news. And I hope that by the end of our time, looking at Paul's conversion story, you will understand that as God pursued Saul, he's also pursuing you. Having people in mind who we pray for, who we love on, who we want to come to Jesus and they don't over time is nothing new in the church. It's been going on since the first century when the church was born and people began to evangelize the world. In fact, the first century Christians had people in their mind who they thought would never in a million years come to Jesus and follow him. And in fact, the very person we're going to look at today is one of those people, Saul, who eventually becomes the apostle Paul, was one of those people who not only hated Christians, but he was bent And he was on a mission to persecute, to imprison, and to kill Christians, to eradicate them off the face of the earth. 
This was Saul. And with some degree of certainty, I think I can tell you with confidence that the first century Christians did not think that Saul would ever come to Jesus, would ever follow Jesus, or would ever be in, have any interest in being a part of the church. Yet that was not God's plan, nor was it his design for Saul. A while back, I did a funeral for an elderly lady who had went to be with the Lord. And as I was officiating this funeral, um, one of the people in the congregation happened to be my age and was a classmate of mine from middle school. And afterwards, he came up to me and said, are you Trinity Op from such and such and so and so? And I, I was like, well, I am Trinity Op and I did live there. He's like, oh my goodness, no way. I was like, no way what? He's like, never in my wildest dreams did I ever think that you would be a pastor. Never in my wildest dreams did I ever think that you would be a Christian. Did you hear that? When you left after ninth grade, I often wondered what would happen to you. And as I thought about your life, the trajectory of your life and the likelihood of where you would be is a life of trouble, in jail, or addicted to some substance like the rest of those who you were running with. That is where my life was headed. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. Amen? And you know what? Yeah, let's praise God for that. Amen. The Apostle Paul actually said the very same thing about his life. But by the grace of God, I am who I am. And that's what this conversion story is all about. The grace of God at work, saving sinners and changing their life and making us different. Grandmas and grandpas, moms and dads, husbands and wives. The people in your life that you're praying for, that you're not seeing come to faith in Jesus, do not give up on them. Do not stop praying for them. Do not stop loving them. You need to know today that God is still in pursuit of them. And that maybe not in your time, but in his time. He can get a hold of their heart and he can change them. For we don't know when that moment will be when somebody will respond to Jesus and his invitation unto salvation. But may we never stop praying for, loving, and pursuing others as God is pursuing them and us. Today, as we look at the Apostle Paul's conversion story, I want to highlight some common characteristics of his conversion that are true for every person that becomes a Christian. 
The first is that each conversion experience has a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, then at some point in your life, you had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. The second is that we all who are Christians must at some point surrender to ourselves and turn to Jesus in repentance and faith and trust him to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and that's save us. And the third commonality that we have in our conversion story is that we all are receiving a call in our life to join God on his mission to make him known throughout the world. Every person who becomes a Christian in this world shares those commonalities when it comes to our own personal conversion. So our Damascus Road experience or our personal conversion can be a sudden life-changing experience just like Saul, where God showed up in that moment, the light came on, and our life was changed, and we were forever never the same, and God set us on a trajectory that was totally different than the way it forever was. But some of us have a different type of Damascus Road experience, where it's not so sudden. Our transformation has taken place over the duration of the road. I can tell you that everybody who has a conversion to Christ, who's become alive in Christ, who is born again in the Spirit, had that moment, that instantaneous moment where we were alive in Christ, where we were justified. Some of you recognized it, some of you didn't. But here's the one thing that we should focus on, rather than trying to discover that moment if we can't remember it. We focus on the life change and transformation that we're living out now as a result of it. Amen? Now, for those of you who don't have a Saul-like conversion experience, you're freed from thinking you need that. Because that's not what's important. What's important is how you're living your life now as one who belongs to Christ. Regardless of our conversion story being immediate or over time, this one thing is true for each one of us. Our conversion comes with life change and life transformation. And every person who becomes a Christian is a product of a miracle of God. For your life in Christ is nothing short of than a miracle from God. That's what we are. Miracles saved by God's grace. Listen to the Apostle Paul as he says of himself in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. This is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. But God had mercy on me so that Christ Jesus could use me as a prime example of his great patience with even the worst sinners. Then others will realize that they too can believe in him and receive eternal life. Did you hear that? Paul recognized that part of his story that he's sharing with us as a result of God's grace saving him is to show us that God is patient with us, that he's pursuing us, and that he will continue to pursue us because if God can save the worst of us, 
then he can certainly save you and he can certainly save me. Amen? So we pick up in in Saul's story in Acts 9, beginning in verse 1, this personal encounter with Christ. This is how it all begins. Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. We're introduced to Saul back in the end of chapter 7 and also in the beginning of chapter 8. It was also Saul that was not only the one recognized as persecuting Christians, but he was also the one who uh, approved the execution of Stephen, the first Christian who was martyred for his faith. If you remember, it was Saul who stood there in approval while Coats were laid at his feet, and Stephen was stoned to death. He no doubt witnessed the killing of Stephen. I even believe that he would have debated Stephen in the synagogues, which led to Stephen's death. I also know that as Saul sat there and stood there watching Stephen die, as Stephen looked up to the Lord and asked God to not let their sins be accounted against them, but that God would be gracious to them, that Stephen even meant Saul. And I believe that as Saul is on the journey to Damascus, all of this is going on. He's recognizing God's pursuit in his life, but he's resisting it. In Acts chapter 8, verse 3, it says, But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Earliest Christians weren't called Christians. They were known, as Luke says here, followers of the way. Remember what Jesus said about himself? I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. These followers of the way, followers of Jesus, were the people that Saul hated. They were the people that Saul was after. Now, Saul was a man who had tremendous credentials. He was a very unique individual. Let me share with you some of his credentials. By birth, a Jew. By conviction, a Pharisee. By citizenship, a Roman. By education, a Greek. And then by the grace of God, a Christian. God's instrument to go into the world, all of the world. He was like a social mutt. He had a little bit of everything in him so that he could connect and he could relate to everybody and he could bring the good news of Jesus to all the world. For first century Christians, Saul was the last person on earth that they thought would become a follower of the way. And next to Jesus Christ, I would argue that no one has had a greater impact on Christianity than the Apostle Paul. For after his conversion, he wrote nearly half of the New Testament. Saul's conversion experience is so significant to the life of the church 
that Luke, who wrote Acts, actually tells us of his conversion story three different times. Once in Acts 9, again in Acts 22, and then again in Acts chapter 26. But in verse 3, we begin to see how God is now on hot pursuit. He's on Saul's tail, chasing him down. As he was approaching Damascus on mission, this is Saul, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. God is the one who pursues us. We are not the ones who pursue God. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. What it doesn't see is, is say is that the world so loved God that it looked to God to solve its problem. What it does say is that God loved the world so much that as he looked upon us, he sent his son Jesus to be the solution to our problem. And that's good news, amen? You see, Jesus can do for us what we cannot and never do for ourselves. It is God who pursues us. It's God who chases us. It's God who comes knocking on our door. I want you to notice that Saul was asked a question. The question was, who are you, Lord? If we consider Saul's conversion experience from Acts chapter uh, 22. He's also asked the question, what shall I do, Lord? Two important questions that we must wrestle with today. Who are you, Lord? I asked, and the voice replied, I am Jesus the Nazarene, the one you are persecuting. The people with me saw the light but didn't understand the voice speaking to me. Verse 10 and in Acts 22 says, and I asked, what should I do, Lord? And the Lord told me, get up and go to Damascus, and there you will be told everything you're to do. Two really important questions that every one of us need to answer. The first question is, who are you, Lord? This is not Saul recognizing Jesus as God. I don't believe that right now. I believe that eventually, yes. But in the moment, I, it's more like, who are you, sir? And what do you want of me? All of us have to answer that question, and how you answer that question will determine your eternity. Who are you, Lord? Who are you, Jesus? When we acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah, the one true God, sent of God, for the salvation of humanity, when we recognize Jesus as the one who can solve our sin problem, and grant us eternal life, when we answer the question like that, then unto eternal life we go. And for the rest of our life, 
we then begin to ask the question daily over and over, what must I do? As a result of my salvation, how do I live it out? For those of you who have never answered the question, who are you, Lord, and you refuse to answer the question by acknowledging Jesus as Messiah, Lord, Savior, and friend, I want you to know that someday you will answer the question on the other side of eternity. And when you stand before God and answer the question, you will give an account and you will acknowledge Jesus as Savior and Lord, but your eternal destiny will not be glory, will not be heaven, and will not be with God. It will be in a lake of fire. It will be where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. It will be in a place called hell. God doesn't want you there, nor do I. That's why I'm telling you this. And it's true. Who are you, Lord? And once we settle that matter and we acknowledge Jesus for who he truly is and what he can truly do for us, as he can be our savior, he wants to be our friend and bring life to us, we then can ask the question, what do you want me to do? You see, a life of following Jesus requires trust and obedience. Trust and obedience. We trust Jesus for our salvation, and we obey God throughout our life. See, Saul in chapter 26, as he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus and asked Jesus who he was and what he should do, we find that Jesus responds to Saul in this way, Acts 26, 14, and when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. What in the world does that mean? And what is a goad? An ox goad is a big spear that has a shiny uh, metal tip on it. And it's used by a farmer to get the ox that's pulling the plow to go in the direction it's supposed to go. So when the ox is rebellious and it goes right when it should go left, the farmer takes this big old prod and like sticks it in his back leg to get it to turn, to go in the direction it's supposed to go. You see, Saul was on the road to Damascus on a mission to kill Christians, and he was persecuting Jesus. And all along the way, Jesus is goading Paul. The Holy Spirit is goading Paul. He was rejecting Jesus. He was wanting to kill the Christians. I want you to think of your life as a follower of Jesus. When you are not living obediently and you're not going God's way, do you ever feel that prod, that prick, that probe, that, that, that constant nag that's in the head, in the heart, maybe in your rear end? That's God getting your attention. It's him taking the gold and poking you, saying, get your life right. Straighten out. How about for those of you who have never said yes to Jesus and, and you're here because you're pleasing somebody? 
The Holy Spirit's after you. God's after you, out of love for you. He's poking you. He's prodding you. He's calling you. He's saying, stop resisting me. Stop persecuting me. Stop killing me. And accept me. And love me like I love you. See, when we resist Jesus in our life, we're hurting ourselves. And we're hurting God too. Know this. You are never too lost to be found. Somebody here needed to hear that today. You are never too lost to be found. We continue in Saul's conversion experience upon which Saul begins to surrender his life to Jesus in repentance and faith. And picking up in in, in verse 10 of chapter 9, Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go to Straight Street, the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I've shown him in a vision a man named Ananias coming and laying hands on him so that he can see again. See, when Saul was confronted by Jesus on the road, He lost his sight. The irony is that he was on a mission to go kill Christians. He had power and authority. He had the documents in hand and he was going. But after the Lord got a hold of him, he was powerless. And he could go nowhere but by the hand of someone who led him. It was a moment where God began to change him. Where God began to bring life to him. Saul was becoming a new man. Saul was becoming a new person in Christ. It's interesting because in verse 13, Ananias was asked, you know, to go to Saul and to lay his hands on him so that he can see it. And then he says in verse 13, but Lord... No, 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 time out. Yeah, I don't think you understand who this guy is, and I, I don't know that you understand what, what you're asking me to do. Well, no, I know exactly who this guy is, and I know exactly what I'm asking you to do, and right now I want you to trust me, and I want you to obey me. And so Ananias, he said, I've, I, I've heard people say terrible things about this man, that he's doing bad things to believers. But God said, Go. For Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the people of Israel. And I'm going to show him just how much he's going to have to suffer for my name's sake. The change in Saul was so significant that even his companions witnessed this change. They witnessed him fall to the ground. They witnessed him get up. They knew he was blind, that he he couldn't eat, and that he was praying. They witnessed, they had to lead him into Damascus. See, this is how you know that a conversion is for real. Life change and transformation truly happens. If you say that you are a follower of Jesus Christ, and you're no different today than you were before you said yes to Jesus, then I'm hard-pressed to believe you've had a true conversion experience. 
For when the Holy Spirit indwells you and brings you to life, makes you born again, you are no longer your old self, you're a new self, and everybody inside the church and outside the church will recognize that you are not who you were, for you are someone new. Saul's blindness was the outer sign of an inner transformation taking place. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is past and the new has come. Saul's surrender was one of repentance, turning from himself and his selfish ways to turning to Jesus Christ and receiving from Jesus what Jesus could do for him. Saul couldn't save himself through his goodness and obedience to the law. He needed Jesus to do that. See, the way that we live our life now as Christians, according to God's plan, is through surrender to the spirit that's in us and the word that God has given to us to guide us through life. A life of surrender for the Christian is a daily decision and the duty for every Christian. When we surrender, we live a life of obedience the Spirit of God, and to the Word of God in our life. Despite his doubts and fears, Ananias was faithful to God's call to help this new Christian find his place in the church and his ministry unto the Lord. You recognize how important and valuable Ananias is to, to, to Paul's ministry? He was one who had a transformed life, and now had to obey God to help Saul know and understand what God had for him. So I want to take a moment, and I want to address all of you who are older than me. I'm going to say I'm in that middle age bracket. My kids are going to say I'm old. I'm going to say I'm young. And I'm going to offend everybody. Because if you're mature, if you're old, I look up to you. And you need to know that. For those of you who are younger than me, I hope you look up to me. I need to know that. But I want us to realize something important here. The Bible tells us that older men and older women are to teach younger men and younger women how to live for God. So for those of you who are older than me, I need you. My generation, we need you. For those of you who are younger than me, you need me. You need our generation. And one of the things I want to encourage us as a church to do is to take responsibility for this great task that God's given us. To care for those who are younger than us and to help teach them how to live into their God-given capacity in this life. One commentator states, 
through Paul's radical transformation. He became a missionary, a theologian, an evangelist, a pastor, a teacher, a preacher, an organizer, a leader, a thinker, a statesman, a fighter, and a lover, all at the same time. Wow, what a resume. And I'm just a common, ordinary Christian. Do you realize how important Ananias was to helping Saul find his ministry fit? I wonder if you recognize and realize how important you are to those who are younger, to, to those who are younger than you, helping them find their fit, their place in ministry. By the way, this isn't just an age thing. It's a Christian maturity thing. Those who are older in the faith, encouraging those who are younger in the faith to live into their God-given capacities. When we surrender to Jesus, it's then that he can make us into the masterpiece that he had in mind for us even before the creation of the world. Remember I said you're never too lost to be found. Now I want you to know that you're never good enough to save yourself. You need Jesus for that. And once you have Jesus for that, God wants to use you as his masterpiece. Finally, Saul receives his call to service. And in verse 20, 19 and 20, afterward, he ate some food, regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately he began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, he is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? See, Saul's preaching became more and more powerful, and the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. If you are a Christian, you're a member of the church. And as a member of the church, you have a unique role, a function. You are a body part that needs to be lived out in the context of the Christian community so that we collectively can be the healthy body of Christ. And we all equally have the same obligation to and responsibility for sharing Jesus with others. It's not just for the evangelist. It's for all believers everywhere to go into the world and share Jesus with people. Each life that has truly experienced a conversion to Christianity, one that has become alive in Christ or born again by the Spirit of God, will demonstrate a change and a transformation in life, a change of our heart and a change of our mind, and, and this change will be experienced by others through the words that we speak, the deeds that we do, the attitudes of our life, and the actions that we live. Let me say this. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you're never too useless to be used by God. I want you to hear that. You're never too lost to be found. You're never good enough to save yourself. And you're never too useless to be used by God. 
God wants to use you. See, God is at work in this world, calling people unto salvation. And we must never stop pursuing people like God is pursuing them. Don't write them off. Don't think they're no longer useful for anything for God. God's calling us to be ambassadors in, this, ambassadors in this world, representing Him, bringing the good news of Jesus, being life changers and transformers, people who encourage others so that they know that the love of God is for them too. Let us never tire of pursuing others with the good news like God is pursuing them too. That's the mission that God's called us to. That's the assignment he's given us. And I trust that together we'll be faithful in that. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word, for the great encouragement and the great challenge today as we consider the significance of a life changed and a life called in a life of surrender. May we never tire of loving others like you love them and like you love us. In Christ's name, amen.